Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, the evolution of childhood with Brenna Hassett and her new book, Growing Up Human. Brenna Hassett is a biological anthropologist whose career has taken her around the globe, researching the past using the clues left behind in human remains. She has a PhD from University College London, where she is currently a researcher and is also a scientific associate at the Natural History Museum. Brenna specialises in using clues from the human skeleton to understand how people lived and died in the past. Her first book, Built on Bones, was well received by critics at the LA Times, The Guardian and The Times, which named it one of the 10 science books of the year. She's a founding member of the Trailblazers Project, which is dedicated to increasing the visibility of women in the digging sciences. And today we're going to talk about Brenna's latest book, which is Growing Up Human, The Evolution of Childhood. Brenna, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me back. First of all, let's talk about what inspired this book. Well, um, (laughs) there's something of a sort of professional hazard of being someone who studies humans and who studies how humans grow and then suddenly attempting to grow a human oneself. So this book fit into a slightly weird place where suddenly my research became very, very real because I was expecting my first baby. Can we talk about what we mean by childhood in the context of the book? Yeah, and I think this is an interesting one because, of course, we've all got very specific notions of of what childhood is. So for me, I'm taking a very kind of mercenary stance and saying childhood is the period where we're being invested in rather than doing investing ourselves. So when people are still pouring resources into us, that's the period when we're dependent. And that's kind of our childhood. And and I think that's kind of central to understanding how weird the human childhood has gotten. That could, of course, all be, you know, somebody up to 30 years old still living at home because they can't afford their own place if they live in London or something. Oh, yeah, no. And I think I did uh, mention to some national newspapers that perhaps 40 was an appropriate age. I also mentioned this to my own parents shortly before turning 40. So I thought, you know, it was probably relevant information for them. Let's talk a bit more then about this idea as a baby, as an investment, something you invested in. You talk about the various ways in which we do that. Yeah. And I think it's, it's really interesting. So my, my focus is basically on 
how humans do investing. But in order to kind of do that, you've got to look at the rest of the animal kingdom because we've all made decisions evolutionarily about where we're going to put our money down. And there's a couple of different ways you can do that. So you can think of investing as a child as like physical capital. We call it embodied capital would be the sort of fancier term. But this is literally the sort of calories in, making sure that a baby is fed, can walk, um, has the appropriate motor skills. These are sort of physical investments that end up as embodied capital. And then you can have, for social animals that have to learn the rules of society, you can have social capital. So animals will also invest in social relationships that will help support their offspring. We, of course, do this. And then there's something that I think humans are very particular about that we've developed fairly recently in our evolutionary past, which is material capital, which is, of course, the ability to leverage all the rest of it towards more advantage for kids. And the book also talks about, I guess, a sort of scientific term of the life history. So tell us what you mean by that in this context. So in a sort of evolutionary biology context, when we talk about how animals invest in reproduction, we can use something called a life history framework. So life history just literally means the major milestones. So being born, growing, sexual maturity, reproducing, dying. You know, these are life history milestones. And if you break them down, especially the ones that are happening um, while our parents are investing in us, you can actually see the different ways different animals have chosen to make those investments. And in terms of that, how, the, how animals have chosen to make those investments, there's always been, I mean, it's, it's sort of slightly contested now, but there's always been seen as a major difference between the size of animals, so the way that a very small animal like a, like a mouse or a rat deals compared to an elephant or a giraffe. Yes, there's size. And um, the other thing that people don't particularly like so um, is something called R versus K uh, life history. So this is um, an old-fashioned formulation that um, you shouldn't bring up with your evolutionary biologist friends because they will laugh at you. But it's a very unsophisticated way to sort of look at some of the pressures that are on animals and how they respond to them. So R pressure is mortality pressure. So you could think of an animal like a spider that's going to have a thousand babies that are absolutely ready to go the second they hatch. They're out, they're done. There's no more care or investment. And that's a shotgun approach because a lot of those babies aren't going to make it. And then you take the other side of the spectrum, which used to be called a sort of K side where it's actually determined by fertility. So animals that invest hugely in just one offspring have you know, this, this K-modulated life history. Uh, so something like a giraffe or a human that's going to spend a lot of time on pregnancy, on birth, on sort of you know, infancy, on childhood, would be the other side. And it's an interesting thing because it's um, something that's supposed to be associated with stable environments versus unstable ones. So it, you're going to have a shotgun approach if life is tough and you don't expect your kids to make it, whereas you're going to invest heavily if you think you might be able to support that kid all the way through. You talk about, the, I mean, the whole book is talking about the, the extended childhood of human beings. But if we just, for the moment, disregard the idea that 40 is now a sensible position to, um, to think about the extent of, of childhood, what are some of the reasons why humans in particular have such an extended childhood? Well, I think, um, you know, the reasons why are pretty multifactorial, scientist answer. But um, I think a lot of it is 
that we use that period to invest in our children. And that seems to be something that's incredibly important for being human. So all animals invest in their kids, whether it's just getting them, you know, to the size they need to be to hatch, whether it's just um, getting them provisioned till they can fledge and fly out of the nest. Animals do invest in the next generation. Uh, mammals have developed an incredibly specialized type of investment called milk, so they can pour even more resources down the throats of their children. Primates, which is what we are, of course, with the monkeys and the cute little lemurs and everything, invest even more. They also have lots of our primate relatives also have this kind of extended childhood, but humans seem to have extended it most of all. And I think that that's probably because we're doing, uh, we're, we're continuing the trend um, set along our sort of evolutionary tree branch of finding ways to invest in order to make sure that our children essentially grow to be humans. And humans require expensive tissues to grow, like big fat brains that cost huge amounts of calories, and they take forever doing it. So I know I've said 40. But your skeleton, there are bits of your skeleton that do not actually finish maturing until you're sort of 30-ish. Most people are sort of skeletally mature around 20-ish, later for guys, always later for guys. But, you know, we actually physically take a long time to grow up. And a lot of this delayed sort of growing up seems to be giving us a chance to essentially pile all of our resources in our children and give them the opportunity to learn to be a better monkey. Human beings are, or at least we think we are, generally a monogamous species. We you know, do pair bonding and that pair bonding often lasts for lifetimes. When we look back on the rest of the, the animal world, scientists have always had like, because, you know, because of human beings, they've always had this sort of like obsession with putting monogamy or, or various different versions of it onto, onto other animals. So, so where does that obsession come from? Well, um, I think there's, there's no one who likes to see themselves reflected in the animal kingdom more than your average um, anthropologist, primatologist, evolutionary biologist, uh, zoologist. Um, but it's, it's very interesting. So we, I mean, we're culturally quite obsessed with monogamy, but it turns out that actually primates in general share this obsession. So monogamy is super weird. And I, I don't think people quite appreciate that because we're very used to the idea of birds. Birds are super weird, but about 90% of birds will do a sort of type of pair bonding. However, for the rest of the animal kingdom, it's less than 10% of animals are going to do this pair bonding. It's a ridiculous way to guarantee your genes get passed down. Primates, however, have a much higher rate of monogamy, um, something like 15% compared to, say, the rest of mammals, which might be 5% monogamous. So primates seem to have a thing about monogamy. There are a couple different explanations for this. Some people sort of say, well, monogamous primates, uh, it settles the question of paternity. So if you have you know, a pair bond, then the male of the species is not going to be inclined to maraud into a new troop and kill all of the babies and commit infanticide because he knows the babies are his. This kind of ascribes a level of knowledge of paternity to a monkey that we can't even always see in our own species. So I, I find some of these explanations are a little problematic. Some people have said that in primates, uh, we have monogamy because 
male monkeys need to follow after female monkeys that range. If female monkeys are on the move, then your, your chances of getting one mean you need to follow her. And then the other thing that I think is really interesting from this idea of investment is that monogamy sort of results in a pair bond where there's just someone else around and that someone else around can help with the baby. And I think that that might be part of our larger human strategy of getting as many people to do as much investing as humanly or primatally possible in the next generation. So monogamy is the thing that, of course, gets us um, the phenomenon that many people might know as dads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listed to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Brenna Hassett and we're talking about her book, Growing Up Human, The Evolution of Childhood. Brenna, let's focus for a few questions on human beings having babies. And well, before we even get to the point of having babies, it's as an example of nature, incredibly hard for a human being to conceive in the first place. So let's talk about why. Yeah, I found a lot of this research fascinating because it wasn't necessarily where my research had sort of taken me before, which is much more into the sort of skeletons and teeth and things. So this was all the soft tissue. And it turns out that humans are terrible at reproducing. So we have all of these things that we sort of um, think are utterly normal, like concealed ovulation. No other primate hides 
when is a good time to get pregnant. But we do for other primates. I mean, you have something like an olive baboon who can't sit down for three days of the month or whatever it is. You know, when there's a very obvious sort of swelling, reddening, we do not do that. That is something that we've dropped from our evolutionary repertoire. And we have all sorts of difficulties in actually conceiving. So we have, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call the weirdest placentas on earth. They're not, I think, probably the duck-billed platypus has got some competition there. But um, the human placenta is something that is just incredibly weird, which I had no idea about. You know, it's essentially a little bit of RNA virus that some mammalian ancestor captured a couple hundred million years ago in order to invest even further in children past what an egg could do, decided we're going to keep this uh, little baby inside and feed it directly off of mother. So the placenta is a filter, and in most animals it works very well as a filter. But in us, it seems to have a couple of different roles, one of which might be essentially as a quality filter, which means that um, we only get pregnant, even if we're doing everything right, about one third of the time. Other primates, it'd be more like 90% success rates. And that same placenta is reason why we have such difficult, difficult pregnancies. So no other animal has decided it would be great to get preeclampsia and die of being pregnant or gestational diabetes. And these are all conditions that are linked, essentially, to the special role the human placenta, not our great ape relatives, but the human placenta plays in signaling and demanding nutrition for mom. So our placentas as humans seem to be already uniquely set up to basically force us to invest more in our babies than perhaps is always in our best interest. And once we have actually finally conceived, giving birth itself for humans is incredibly dangerous, remains so now. It's, it's obviously less dangerous than it was a few hundred years ago, but, it, but it's still incredibly dangerous in comparison. Before we talk about why it's so dangerous, something else you talked about much earlier in the book, which we haven't covered, is an animal like a, a you know a giraffe or a gazelle out on the savanna will drop a baby, just literally it falls out of it and it stands up and it's running minutes later, and that's like almost a you know a fully formed giraffe and it's just given birth to. Whereas obviously a human baby and a lot of primate babies are much more vulnerable as soon as they're born. And let's just talk about why that is. Well, so this is um, the difference between altricial babies and precocial ones. So useless babies are considered altricial. And you can think of that as um, still dependent, hugely dependent. So like kittens with eyes shut and ears closed are altricial, whereas the giraffe ready to run across the savanna is precocial. And that is, of course, a mix of investment. So you can be pregnant for longer and have a, a more oven-ready baby. You know, the, the baby's cooked longer and it's more prepared. And that is a great strategy if you can get enough energy to that baby and you can really invest in the pregnancy, that you can, you can funnel enough energy through the mom to the baby that you can grow something the size of a giraffe. However, if you can't make that investment or it's not such a good idea to make that investment, because you're a little bit worried that not all the kittens will make it, you might spend less effort on the pregnancy and more effort somewhere else. And the thing that humans seem to do is that we actually do spend a huge amount of energy on the pregnancies, um, and we do invest in just one, 
but we still have sort of kitten useless babies. We, you know, their necks won't hold them up. They have to be constantly fed. They really aren't doing nothing of great interest for several years, basically. But um, what people have said um, as an explanation for the reason why we have babies that are so unready, despite the fact that we are investing hugely in them and we're spending more calories than other primates on our gestations, is that we grow really expensive babies that were basically, we have taken the primate form and made the most expensive possible version of it. And that's largely down to our brains. This is the expensive tissue hypothesis that we are channeling all of these calories into these animals and they're still not coming out done because we are growing their brains because we prioritize smart babies. And then, of course, we're giving birth to babies that aren't ready, that aren't finished, but it's still incredibly dangerous. So let's, let's talk about some reasons why it's incredibly dangerous for a human beings to give birth. And I think this is, this is a fascinating avenue of sort of evolutionary anthropology. So many people will have probably heard that of something um, that's formally called the obstetric dilemma, which is that at some point in our evolutionary history, we decided to walk upright. And this necessitated a stable pelvis with um, legs in a sort of upright position in order to facilitate walking and running, which became very important to our species. And then this uh, stable pelvis, unfortunately, was small and compact, whereas our terribly large baby brains were terribly large. And the difficulty of passing the one through the other is the main reason why human birth is so difficult compared to other animals. The thing is, one of the things that we have always known about human birth is that in order to accommodate it, you actually have to twist the baby. The baby makes a little twist in the birth canal because the fit is so narrow, otherwise the head wouldn't come out. So our babies, unlike um, the babies of, say, a macaque or other animals, come out facing slightly sideways and they make this special twist. And so for a long time, we thought, okay, well, that's how we have dealt with this terrible hand that we've dealt ourselves. But it turns out we're not the only primate who does this. Chimpanzees, who split off from our last common ancestor well before we started walking, also do this twist. They have no particular, they don't have the pelvic pressure that we imagined was affecting humans. So it may be that our deeply uncomfortable and quite frequently fatal births are actually a kind of mismatch between the amount of investment we're able to do in baby growing and the sort of size and availability of the exit for that baby. So our superpowered placentas that allow us to sort of pour resources into our baby do allow us to grow very large babies. And babies, of course, um, they also benefit from investment and can grow large. And, uh, you know, there are cultures around the world that have food taboos for pregnant women expressly to avoid this. So um, I, think it, I think it's Niger where you're not supposed to give pregnant women um, camel meat because it's too much protein and it will cause a difficult birth. So there are places around the world that directly say, well, if you feed a baby too much, it's going to be difficult <laughs> to get it born. I don't think that that's exactly the, uh, the full answer to our dilemma. But it, I think there is more to it than what perhaps people would have had in their, their basic introduction to evolutionary science. Well, I wanted to talk more about various different cultural ways around the world that we give birth, like around the actual act of giving birth, whether that's the position 
that we give birth in or whether that's the position of women, i.e. midwives, in the act of giving birth? Yeah, I think it's super interesting. While I was researching this book, um, I decided to look at the cultural things that humans do, because, of course, humans basically use culture as a second lever of adaptation. We don't rely on just reacting to our environment. We have these complicated cultures that both create and solve problems for our species. And that sort of shows up physically in our lives as well. So um, I was really fascinated to learn that um, I think it's about 16% of surveyed cultures in one study uh, relied on a hammock for giving birth, which I do not believe was offered on the NHS. But it struck me as, well, I guess that might, that might work. But we have all sorts, I mean, we have a deep history, both in archaeology and in terms of ethnography, of people having very different birth experiences. So there's, um, you know, there's a magical brick in ancient Egypt. They found an example of one at uh, Abydos, um, where, uh, and a brick is, of course, there um, for the woman to support herself on. So you have magic bricks, you have hammocks. There are a vast variety of ways that humans have worked out that they would like to give birth. Of course, one of the things that humans do that very few other animals do is allow someone else to be present at the birth. Most other animals um, give birth in solitude, and everybody prefers that way. Humans generally need help. Part of this might be related to the twisting, that sort of uh, terrible obstetric dilemma. But uh, humans have midwives, and midwives, we think, have been around for a very, very long time. We can certainly see evidence of midwives as soon as we get you know, textual records of humans we know that there are midwives out there. What seems to have changed in recent history is the role of midwives versus the role of doctors, uh, which is, of course, another interesting <laughs> historical phenomenon of how humans adapt to their own adaptations. And just widening that out a little bit from, you know, human beings are one of the only animals that has other people around them when they give birth to the sort of wider family structure so you mentioned dads earlier and I wanted to talk about first of all why fathers because again from a very sort of explicitly evolutionary perspective there doesn't really seem a point in fathers hanging around but they do so first of all why is that and then the second thing is for most species actually reproducing is you know the point and then you die basically you have a child you die or you know not long after Whereas human beings obviously live a long time. Human women, obviously, we're talking about here, live a long time beyond the period in which they're fertile. So what's the point of grandmothers? So I think, so I think the, um, the issue of dads is one of these things where we can look again at this investment where all hands on deck are needed to invest in the next generation. And having a second pair of hands is really, really helpful and beneficial. So for the other primates that have strong dads, they are actually mostly at the bottom of our family tree. They are the little guys, um, titi monkeys and marmosets. But these are animals that traditionally have twins, which is exactly too many babies for one uh, mom to carry. Their social structures and the way that they um, sort of function means that they have to have dads to carry the babies. 
and that the dads are essentially the primary carer and carrier. So the, the type of investment there is really critical to the you know, growing marmoset. For us, we do have options. Um, we have present and non-present dads, but what we do have is societies where people can step into these roles. You don't have to be a male biological uh, relative to be a dad. You know, there's all sorts of social roles that we have. It's called alloparenting would be the sort of technical term where we essentially as humans have aunties and uncles and friends and acquaintances and buddies and whatever it is who can help us with our offspring and help make that investment. I think that's the really critical thing and that dads, their offspring benefit from having these extra investments. So it is in their interest to make them. Um, And of course, the other thing to talk about is the utterly, utterly suspicious nature of grandmas. It blows the mind that grandmas are really, really unlikely. They don't exist in the animal kingdom. It's not reasonable for an animal to turn off its reproductive potential, because in most animals, the goal is as many kids as possible. We go very hard on the as many well-invested kids as possible. And to this end, we seem to have done something that only a handful of whales have considered, which is turning off female reproduction halfway through the lifespan. So it's us, orcas, and a few other species of whales that essentially have grandmothers. And the grandmother hypothesis is the sort of evolutionary theory that says, essentially, grandmothers are there to invest in you know, one generation down. So a grandmother isn't investing in a new baby. A grandmother is doubling down in the investment of her genetic offspring. So if you want to maximize this investment in your species, you're going to have to make some radical decisions. And these apparently include dads and grandmas. So I've been talking to Brenna Hassett. We've been talking about her book, Growing Up Human, The Evolution of Childhood, which is out in the UK from Bloomsbury. Brenna, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Brilliant. Thanks so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.